Howdy, folks. Welcome back to another edition of TGC Midweek. My name is Jacob. I'm here with Michael Novak, and we're continuing our series on the five points of Calvinism. Wrapping up unconditional elections today, we're going to look at a couple of objections and frequently asked questions on this topic. And if you've been with us for a couple of weeks, you'll know that we spent a couple of weeks on total depravity, and then the last two weeks we've been on unconditional election, which we defined as um, God's sovereign election before the beginning of time for all those whom he desires for salvation, not based off of any goodness that those people have, but out of his sheer grace. And um, had a pretty good conversation about that last week. If, if you haven't checked that out, highly encourage you to, to go do that. Uh, but Michael, today we're going to be looking at uh, just some some objections to this. I imagine um, that there's some some pushback that we come across from time to time. What are some things that you've heard uh, in that vein? You would imagine correctly there is some pushback uh, to this um, unconditional election, the idea or doctrine of unconditional election. I guess the first uh, the first objection that normally uh, pops up is uh, election can lead to spiritual arrogance. You think God chose you? Um, I mean, you think you're so special, Jacob? Uh, God? I, I certainly know I'm not special because yeah. I listened to the first two weeks where we did total depravity. So. Well, um, <laughs> that's good for you because, you know, a lot of folks might look at you and think that you just think you're something special oh, man. since God chose you. And uh, if you're tracking with our whole line of argument over the past few weeks, uh, then you actually know that believing uh, the doctrine of election, if you've understood it at all, it does not lead to arrogance. It leads to um, a massive dose of humility because at the core of the biblical doctrine is that he chose us because we couldn't choose him on our own. And so uh, when you realize that he didn't choose you because of any quality or value in you, it really brings uh, a sense of humility uh, and thankfulness uh, into the picture um, when you think about unconditional election. Um, you've got to admit that you've got no superiority to people around you. And this includes the worst of all people. Mm -hmm. um, I am not more superior than... Um, I, I don't want to be melodramatic, but then the pedophile or the terrorist uh, in and of myself, um, the doctrine humbles you to the point where you've got to say there's nothing in me that's better than anyone else. Um, and so it really pushes against spiritual arrogance if you understand it correctly. You're absolutely right. And I think I think the lack of understanding often comes from folks who might be tempted towards arrogance in, in this. They forget the unconditional part. To, to your point, there's nothing um, in me as an elect person that is better than um, my neighbor or the guy across the street or my coworker um, who aren't believers. There was nothing in me that was any better than that. And so there's nothing for me to be arrogant about it. The only thing that I can boast about is that God saw fit out of his sheer grace to elect me for salvation. And that is the most humble of boasts because it points to something greater. That's right. And if you play it out, uh, let's just use your coworker, for instance. Mm -hmm. We don't have anybody specific no. in mind, obviously. Uh, but you're, uh, you are a Christian. Your coworker is not. Why do you believe um, that uh, you're saved? Or, or why, do you, why do you believe and your coworker doesn't? Uh, well, you might say, I accepted Jesus and my coworker didn't. Well, okay, why did you accept Jesus? Because I repented and my coworker wouldn't. Yes, but because I was willing to admit I was a sinner and my coworker didn't. 
Um, yes, but why were you willing and he wasn't? Well, because, and you can fill in the blank, whatever that final answer is, is your basis for God's love for you. And at that moment, you've based God's love for you on something. Um, and if you've uh, based your love on um the fact that God loves you on something, then you've departed from the Bible's teaching. Yeah, you've basically made election conditional then. That's right. And as we saw last week, the Bible is uh, uh, full of teaching that there's nothing in us that God, um, that was the basis of God's election. The basis of God's election was God's own good pleasure. That's right. If you believe the only difference between you and your coworker is God's grace, if the only difference between you and him is that God has opened your heart and hasn't yet opened his heart, at least not yet, if that's the only difference, then you don't have any basis on which to disdain or look down mm-hmm. upon your coworker. You've got no grounds whatsoever to feel superior uh, anymore. Um, but if you believe that the difference between you and your coworker is that you were a little better or had a little more faith or were a little wiser, or maybe you were a little more humble than he was, if you believe the difference is not in God, but in you, then you've got some grounds for which to look down your nose on others and mm-hmm. judge them. And so if you really understand unconditional election, it leads to a humility that you can't really find anywhere else. Yeah. And this is where I think if... If you, if you start with total depravity and you accept that, this falls right into place. I said that a couple of times last week, but I, I think it bears repeating. That's right. Um, another objection that you often hear is um, that election is unfair. Oh, yeah. Uh, how can God look at certain people and say, sorry, but you're not on the list? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very popular objection you'll often hear. Yeah, you hear that one a bunch. Um, and the way that the way that I tend to think about this is... God would be perfectly um, within his rights, as it were, to damn all of humanity to eternal hell because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, every facet of our being is uh, wrought with the poison of sin. So God would be perfectly just in giving us the just punishment um, for our actions. In fact, he would be unjust to not do that. Um, but God or God could show mercy on everyone, but, but he doesn't. And and at a certain point we have to be comfortable with the, I don't know question of why it's only some, but at the end of the day, everyone gets mercy or justice. No one gets injustice. And even those who receive mercy, there is justice in the cross. The justice for their sins is poured out upon Christ on the cross. So, um, when you understand, you know, kind of, uh, how, how God is relating with people in this way, we can see that no one gets injustice. There's no unfairness going on. Um, it's just a different outcome. Yeah, and the 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 way folks phrase the question oftentimes shows that they don't really understand um, uh, what's happening. Uh, the idea of fairness, as you're hitting on, Jacob, is based on merit. Fairness is getting what you deserve. Mm-hmm. But the Bible's clear: nobody deserves salvation. So we don't want to argue for God to be fair. Right. Um, yeah, the last thing we would want, <laughs> that, yeah. that would be horrible for all of us, for, be for God to just be fair and just to everyone. That's right. For, for God to be fair and give you what you deserve is hell. Mm-hmm. And the question is, do you really want that? Right. Uh, so for God to exclude some from salvation is in no way unfair unless you maintain that God was under an obligation to mm. provide salvation for sinners. And as R.C. Sproul puts it, grace that is owed is not grace. Yeah. 
um, grace that is owed um, becomes merit, and merit is opposed to grace. So the question is not, why did God save some and not others, but why did God save anybody? Yeah. And I think about an illustration. If there was an orphanage down the street, and they had a 100 children in that orphanage, and Rachel and I went and adopted three children from that orphanage and brought them home, made them our own children, um, provided for all of their needs throughout their entire life, Nobody would look at me and Rachel and say, man, I cannot believe how horrible Michael and Rachel Mm. are for going down to that orphanage that has a hundred children and all they did was just adopt three of them. They would look at us and say, wow, how amazing that Michael and Rachel went down to this orphanage that had a hundred children that deserved in some ways, I guess, for lack of argument, we we wouldn't say they deserve what they're getting um, with compassion. Um, but y- the analogy uh, holds in terms of you'd look at Ra- Michael and Rachel and say, wow, how amazing uh, and generous and gracious that they went to adopt yeah. those three children. There's no injustice being done to those that are not adopted. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote by um, C.H. Spurgeon, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly, but it was within the context of a, a woman who had heard one of his sermons where he had preached on um, – uh, one of the things we quoted out of Romans last week where where Paul is quoting the Old Testament and where it says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. And the woman was kind of complaining to to Spurgeon a little bit and saying, I don't understand how God could hate Esau. And Spurgeon said, that's not my problem, madam. Mine is how could God love Jacob? Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's, that's, the, uh, that's the answer to this objection, mm-hmm. I think. It's a different perspective altogether. That's right. There's some other objections uh, oftentimes I've heard before. Um, this one, um, what if someone wants to believe in Jesus, um, but they're just not in the club? They're not elect. Um, I've heard this phrase, kind of its mirror image is, um, I can't believe in unconditional election because how could God uh, drag people kicking and screaming into heaven who don't want to be there? Yeah. And uh, the way you uh, would respond to that is that election does not exclude anybody from the kingdom of God who wants in. Right. Uh, And it kind of gets back to some of the conversations we've had before, but election just doesn't work this way. Let's say that there is a restaurant that everyone is trying to get into. It's like the hot new restaurant in town, huge lines to get in. But unfortunately, there's a VIP list that God has drafted up. And if you're not on the list, God closes the door in your face as you're pounding on the door wanting Mm. in. That's kind of the the picture uh, that you have in mind with this objection. But the reality of the the Bible, the reality that the Bible tells us of is that everyone is not pounding to get into the restaurant. Uh, In fact, they're running in the opposite direction. No one wants in. Romans 3, 10 to 18 says no one seeks after God. Salvation is that God seeks them. And so the biblical idea that only the elect will want in, the biblical idea is that only the elect will want in because God first changes our desires. That's right. And again, in this question, we see a lack of understanding of the base human condition, um, which is totally depraved. There's no one not kicking and screaming, trying to get into heaven that God, uh, for some reason, forces to be out. No, people are making their own free choices and, and pursuing their own free desires according to their own free choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the nature of people generally, 
that's not kick, kicking and screaming and knocking at the door of heaven. Yep, that's right. And um, John six thirty seven, uh, Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And so God's the first mover there. Um, yeah. He changes our desires. We want to come to him once our desires are changed, once our nature is changed. Our will is reoriented because now we're making a new set of choices mm-hmm. according to a new nature. That's right. Um, and we talked about this uh, for a few weeks in a row. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, that's the answer to this objection. Um, nobody's pounding on the door being left out. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're not elect. Okay, but on that point, does not the Bible say that it's God's will that none should perish? That's true. Um, it, you see that in a number of different places, specifically 2 Peter 3, verse 9, uh, that God desires for all men to be saved. Or actually, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, it says it's not God's will that any should perish. Mm-hmm. And then in 1 Timothy 3, um, or actually, sorry, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 4, it says that God desires for all men to be saved. So this is um, oftentimes folks will bring these passages up to say, look, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all men to be saved. And that seems to contradict this whole teaching of unconditional election. Um, And it's important uh, to... um, make a distinction here uh, that God wants all men uh, without distinction to be saved. He wants all men and women without distinction to race, um, geography, social economic status, um, vocation in life to be saved. But it's not saying that God wants all men or women without exception mm-hmm. to be saved. It's interesting when you look at the uh, the Second Peter three verse nine passage. It says it's not God's will that any should perish. Just before that, in context, he's talking about offering prayers for all people, mm. and he includes uh, um, those in government, government officials. He includes uh, those that are in high standing. He wants Christians to be praying for these people, um, and right along um, the lines of Peter's argumentation, he says, it's not God's will that any should perish. Peter talking here about folks in high position, yeah. uh, government officials. He doesn't want those kind of people to perish. Um, and so Peter's really saying um, God has a desire for folks without distinction, not without exception. We probably have to dig in here also and and think about um, what it means when we talk about God's will, because there is um, God's efficacious will where God wills something and it happens no matter what. And then there's God's um, uh, desires that he does not um, cause to come to pass, so to speak. Yeah, I think the way to resolve this is to recognize, like you're hitting on, that there's different meanings to God's desire and God's will in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's three, really, uh, three ways to think about God's will. There's His decorative will, and that's His sovereign, efficacious will. Whatever God wills comes to pass, and therefore whatever happens in the world is a result of His decorative will. And and we know that these Scriptures—sorry to interrupt you, but we know that these Scriptures can't be talking about this will— because I don't think there would be anyone that would conclude that there was no, or very few people that would conclude that there were no people ever who are sent to hell. Because if we say that the first Peter passage or second Peter passage is referring to God's decorate decretive will, mm-hmm. then, uh, then that would mean that all people are saved and we would be universalists. Yep, that's right. Um, and, and so it kind of falls in on itself there. Is God weak? 
Um, is he not able to accomplish his desires? Um, is is kind of uh, what the objection to to that would be. Um, but on top of the decorative will, um, you've got uh, God's uh, prescriptive or perceptive will, and that's referring to his commands and laws. God wills for you and me not to murder, not to lie, uh, not to worship other gods. Uh, and so that's another way that we can think about God's will from Scripture. And lastly, uh, we can think about God's pleasing will, um, those things that please Him. God's pleased by our acts of faith. He's pleased by our obedience. He's pleased by our good works. So which idea or which will in Second Peter um, is being referred um, to? What is, what is Peter referring to? Which, which will of God? Is it the decorative will? Um, God is not willing that any should perish. If that were true, then none would perish, like you just touched on. Um, but this is obviously wrong because Bible clearly says that some do perish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this would be basically universalism uh, if this passage were true. Um, and this can't be what this means because this ends up overreaching. It proves too much. Um, is this the prescriptive will or God's perceptive will? God commands that we not perish. In other words, perishing is forbidden by God. It's sinful. So if people perished, God would have to punish them. In other words, they'd have to perish for their sin of perishing. But how can you perish more than once? It, it makes no sense. And so the third option is Peter is talking about God's pleasing will. And I think this is uh, what Peter is uh, touching on that God takes no delight in the perishing of people. Um, Punishment of the wicked doesn't bring joy to God in a certain sense. Um, The idea is much like a judge sentencing his own son to prison. Um, It it brings grief to his heart. Um, And you even see that back in Genesis, that uh, God's heart was grieved when he looked at the evil of mankind Mm -hmm. in Genesis chapter 6. You almost have this sense of compassion um, uh, flowing from God's heart as he thinks about those who are following their own path um, into destruction. So then can God be glorified in something that doesn't bring him joy? Um, I think that you'd have to say yes, um, that, uh, that the idea that some um, are sent to judgment at the end of the day brings glory to God um, because justice mm-hmm. is done um, and... Uh, and so I think that um, his election um, at the end of the day for those that are elect and for those that follow their own path into destruction and judgment um, both bring glory to God yeah. um, in different ways. So God takes no delight in the perishing of his creation. So from there, we might be tempted to say, well, then why doesn't God just elect everyone? And we end up back in that sort of position and here again is somewhere where I think we have to be we have to be comfortable with a little bit of the mystery and we have to be comfortable saying I don't know because there's a lot smarter people than me um who have gotten to this point and just said I don't know. All I know is that God has chosen some and not others. That's right. And we're bumping up against the secret will of God mm-hmm. here. And it reminds me of Deuteronomy 29:29. 29, 29. It says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of his law. And so there are some secret things that belong to the Lord our God alone Mm -hmm. that we'll never be able to uh, discern or or figure out this side of glory. Yeah. 
So just while we're camping out here, does this mean that predestination is double? Does God elect some for salvation and then elect others for reprobation? Yeah, I think uh, that would that would be termed um, hyper Calvinism mm-hmm. uh, by some theologians, and uh, I tend to uh, take the view that God elects um, certain people for salvation before the foundation of the world, but those who are um, reprobate or uh, move into judgment, God simply allows them to follow their desires. Mm-hmm. Uh, directly into that judgment. In other words, he doesn't intervene. So I guess the question uh, becomes, uh, does he choose them before the foundation of the world? You'd have to say he knows, mm-hmm. um, but he's simply allowing them to follow their nature yeah. uh, into judgment. Um, and uh, really the highlight of unconditional election, I think, is going back to that adoption illustration. How amazing that he intervenes to save any. Right. Um, when all of us would have been headed towards destruction mm-hmm. without his gracious intervention in some of our lives. Yeah. So it is double in the sense that there is two options. There's two poles that, that everyone falls into. So it's double in the sense that there is the elect that God has chosen before the foundations of the world, and there is the reprobate who, and this is where we would say we're not hyper-Calvinist, God did not create the sin or force the sin and, and thereby... Um, secure their eternal damnation, but merely let them pursue the free desires of their heart. That's right. Um, and I know I sound like a broken record at this point. And if you understand total depravity, a lot of this unconditional election stuff really just falls into place because this is simply the group that is allowed to pr- pursue whatever they want to do. And is it pursues their free will apart from God. That's right. And it, it kind of leads us into our, our last objection yeah. that we'll talk about. Um, the objection goes, this whole idea wrecks free will. If God makes the decision for me, then I really don't have a choice in the matter, do I? Mm. And like you say, you can't say it enough that you've got to understand total depravity because we do make choices every day, but we make choices based on our nature. Um, And so uh, we are free to choose in some ways, uh, I guess you could say, but you've got to understand our nature drives our choices and our nature is so fallen and corrupt that even though we've got the freedom to choose, we're always going to choose evil. We're always going to gravitate towards towards sin ultimately. Yeah. You mentioned it, I think, one of the other podcasts, and it's stuck with me as as we've been prepping for these last couple of weeks. Um, you can only choose according to your nature. And the, the illustration that you pointed out was, I I could choose to to breathe water, um, but it's I don't have lungs, so that wouldn't go very well. It's not in my nature to do so. I could make that choice mm-hmm. to attempt attempt that, but it wouldn't really work. Yeah. Um, the the other analogy I like is is if you give a lion the choice between a raw steak and a head of broccoli, he'll, his choice is already made, and mm-hmm. it's because he will always make the free choice according to his nature. Yeah. So on the surface here, we can say as as a Christian, yes, I made the choice to accept the gospel. But when we dig into it just another surface deeper, and we think about that we are by nature alien from God. We're children of wrath. The wages of sin is death. So the thing that we've actually worked for and earned is is judgment. Um, and God's justice must be satisfied. When we think about all this, then it becomes clear that the only reason I made that choice and my coworker didn't to pick up on our uh-huh. on our illustration from earlier in this episode, 
the only reason I made that choice and, and he didn't wasn't because of anything anything in me. It's because God gave me a new nature, which yep. then gives me a new free will and enables me to make a free choice for God. That's right. I mean, God's election does not violate our wills. He's not forcing us to do something we don't want to do. Instead, He comes and He changes our nature so that we're able to choose Him. He doesn't force you to do something you don't want. He changes your wants. Like uh, Jeremiah says, He takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. Uh, The idea of regeneration, rebirth. And once we are reborn because of God's work in our heart, um, we are able to choose Him. Mm. Uh, and so we're not robots. Your choices are absolutely r- real. Uh, we just choose based on our nature. That's right. That's right. Well, these have been some good conversations on a couple of, of objections. Do you have any final thoughts before we close out the episode? You know, I, you just can't highlight it enough that these are dominoes that fall mm-hmm. upon one another. And so um, I feel like a lot of these objections have taken us back to the idea of total depravity and the nature of mankind. Yeah. And so um, hopefully folks are seeing that this is a logical kind of argument um, that we're making with regard to salvation. You've got to understand mankind before you can understand God's unconditional election. Um, and so if you haven't listened uh, to the first few podcasts, you've already said it, but really encourage you to go and listen, give those a listen. Yeah. Well, very good. Um, we'll go ahead and close it out for this episode of TGC Midweek. Next week, we're going to be picking up our series on the five points of Calvinism with the L in TULIP, Limited Atonement. Um, if you've got questions on that, or really if you've got questions on anything related to the Christian faith, um, we'd like to take a stab at those as well. You can send those questions to michael at trinitygracesa.org, um, or you can text those questions anonymously to 210-920-0783. That's all for this week. Until next time, we'll see you later.